Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Behind Massive Screens, a game development podcast here from Massive Entertainment in Malmo, Sweden. Before we get to our esteemed guest who's here with us today, I just want to introduce my new co-host here at BMS, Dori Haldorsson. Haldorsson. I've been been rehearsing. It's close. You're not quite there, but... uh... We'll get there. But yeah, my name is uh, Dori Haldorsson, and uh, I recently joined the content team here at uh, Massive. And, uh, you know, I've been working behind the scenes, editing and uh, working on the podcast. And I think after about, like, my 20th email to, to Petter... And 150th team message. Yeah, where I was like, maybe next time, why don't you ask about something like this? And, like, and then I finally broke him down, and he said, hey, why don't you just co-host... <laughs> And uh, and bring your flavor to the podcast. So no yeah. pressure. I'm <laughs> yeah, stop mailing me. Just show up. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, excited. Uh, I mean, I've been spending um, over a decade uh, on the other side mm-hmm. of uh, gaming in the media. So uh, I have. Oh, I would like to think that I have a certain point of view of stuff that I would like to know about developers, not just you know the actual games and making of the games, but also the the. The actual personalities, the people that make the games, which I want to, to get to. So, And that, that's what we are going to get to. I'm just going to add real quick. We used to work together 11 years ago. Uh, Dory behind the camera, me in front of the camera. And as I've said before, Dory is probably the one, besides my mother, who has stared the most at my face over the years. Yeah, and, li- and listen to your voice again and again on the loop. <laughs> that was your job for like <laughs> way too long. But and, and again, we're not the most interesting people in this room, believe it or not. It's Paula. Welcome, Paolo Hofstein, art director, and oh, art producer. Could, art couldn't producer. Get, couldn't even get that right. I'm really bad at titles. <laughs> art producer on the Division 2. Welcome, Paolo. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I, I'm actually going to start completely non-game related, mm-hmm. really. Uh, your name, Paolo. Yes. It's really Swedish. Yes. Why? Well, so uh, I'm from Vancouver, Canada. Right. Um, however, my mother is from Sweden. Uh, my grandfather is actually from Malmo, and uh, on both sides of my parents' family, people are variously from Sweden and Denmark. Right. So, uh, so I had a connection to this region long before I, I got here, and uh, grew up in a household where people spoke Swedish and Danish, and were very Scandinavian, and, and fika was very important. <laughs> fika is always important. Yeah. You know. Um, so, but I, but interestingly, I was the only one in my household and among all the relatives that was born in Canada and I'm the only one that's here now. Right. Uh, <laughs> how did, how did that feel then coming to Malmo with uh, your grandfather from here? Uh, it was really interesting. Like I was, I was going to go to, uh, to Copenhagen and I thought I'll go over to Malmo because it's where my grandfather's from. I was really curious and I, I really fell in love with the city. Yeah. And I felt very at home here 
in a way that I'm not used to when I'm traveling. I mean, I, I love going everywhere. I love traveling, but, um, you know, I, I guess maybe just being raised in a, in a household of people from this region that the, everything here just felt incredibly normal to me <laughs> in, in a way that I'm not used to. I'm in a country I've never been in before. Right. Um, you know, so that was fun. And, uh, you know, and after a, a couple of visits, I mean, I'd been with uh, Ubisoft for a while uh, in a different studio in, in Germany and Mainz. Um, you know, I thought, well, there is a studio in Malmo, Ubisoft Studio. They're working on a franchise I'm a fan of, right. you know, so maybe I can find some way to negotiate uh, uh, working up in Malmo. Right. Yeah, relatively speaking, I mean, Malmo is a fairly, sm it, it's a large city in Sweden terms, mm -hmm. or in, in the Swedish context, but in the world, it's really small uh, it's tiny compared to vancouver yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. how many people live in vancouver but oh, i don't know it's it's hard because more than Malmo. yeah i mean it's 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 a city surrounded by lots of other cities that is ultimately one big city um but they all count their population separately so i, I don't know but it's probably i guess in around three four million people in the area yeah that's quite the difference yeah yeah but how did you um end up in i uh, this is quite a long story i know which is awesome but I, let's just start out with how you ended up in the industry because your entire journey now so far in the industry has led you here to massive mm -hmm. and to malmo where we started this entire conversation but how where did where did it start yeah i mean i had a bit of an unusual entry into the industry and in that i never planned to be in it and i didn't get into it until i was about 30 years old right um, despite the fact that, you know, as a teenager, I played games religiously, you know, and uh, on my Commodore 64 and, and my Amiga and, and hacked them to pieces to learn how games were made, how games worked. And yet it never occurred to me that this could be something I would do for a living. Right. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of my 20s bouncing around the film industry. And the film industry is fun as hell. Like the game industry, it's it's a lot of work and there's a lot of long hours and there's a lot of craziness. Um but uh, but it was enjoyable, but I could not get meaningful work. I was doing what they call production assistant work, which is low-paying, uh, bottom-of-the-ladder kind of stuff. Yeah, the competition must be insane. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do anything meaningful in the industry, I'm going to need to get a bit of an education. So I took a teaching gig for a while because it paid well and went to a place called Vancouver Film School, uh, which is now also known for, for its gaming program, but at the time it was just film. And, you know, I studied film and directing and writing and editing. And, you know, I was going to be the next Ridley Scott and, and take <laughs> on Hollywood and, and make awesome science fiction movies and so forth. Um, but uh, obviously that's not quite what happened other than making a couple, you know, in, you know short indie films. Uh, a friend of mine who worked briefly in the game industry started his own game company called Mad Genius Software. He found a couple guys that were building their own game engine. This was in the days of of Duke Nukem and, and Doom, yeah. you know, so 3D engines were, were pretty simple. And these guys had one that could do things that no one else's engine could do at that time with animated textures and big outdoor spaces. So what they were doing was pretty cool. And I'd been making a, a Doom Watts. I'd been, I, I'd been playing around with, you know, just making my own, my own maps in Doom. And so I kind of bugged these guys, like, can I help you? Can I help you? Can I help you? You know, they got an office, they got some money. And so they brought me in. They didn't know what to do with me. They thought, well, he's a filmmaker. He can help with cutscenes. They weren't even remotely ready for cutscenes because they were just starting <laughs> out the game. So I started playing around with their level editor and I started making levels, started making maps. And I was good at it. And so they let me continue doing that. You know, and this was in an era where you could make a first person shooter, which is what we made, um, with 20 people. 
I mean, how many people were on Division Two at peak? A thousand, maybe. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. There was twenty of us. We made this game, and you had to wear a lot of hats. So I was the you know level designer, and I also made textures, and I did some scripting, and I answered the phone, and I went to conferences and handed out T-shirts at E3. Like you just do everything, right? Sure. Um, you know, and so we we made this game, and uh, you know we worked our asses off and did some crazy hours, and after two years, we put it out there, and we're absolutely destroyed by a game you may have heard of called Quake that came out. <laughs> just before us yeah and um and we went bankrupt and that was the end of of us and i thought well that's the end of my adventure in the video game industry time to get back to filmmaking right um but uh but a guy that an artist that i worked with there uh, he got a job with a sort of a veteran uh, game company called backbone entertainment i think they were called digital eclipse at the time and they were working on spyro the dragon games uh for for game boy and stuff and they, they needed a a, a level designer and so this guy recommended me, and uh, so I went over for an interview, and the guy didn't want to interview me. He was like, he asked me about, you know, Commodore 64 games, and then he said, let's go drink tequila. He was, <laughs> he was really into, like, fancy tequilas. He's like, I can taste the difference between, like, a $20 tequila and a $30 Tequila, can you? He was really interested in if I it's could a, do this. It's a very valid interview uh, ab question. Absolutely. Right? And I guess I did well because at the end of the night, he was like, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> well, it was a bit of a different era. I mean, this was a long time that, ago. That sounds, <laughs> sounds very much like how I thought of the uh, video game industry back in the day. Yeah, That's how it, mean, that was how it worked for you, right? Yeah. yeah. Just a couple of months ago, I mean, drinking I, tequila in a bar. But I also got uh, <laughs> a job in Denmark, so it was beer. Uh, yeah. That's... <laughs> Yeah, well, That's I mean, Can yes, Canada, known for its tequila. Uh, <laughs> the the thing is, I mean, I've been in the game industry ever since. Right. So I guess the film industry thing didn't actually work out, but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. You, I mean, you can always go back to the film industry. Don't leave us. Yeah. Let's not go down that path. I, I, I could, but, you know, it kind of occurred to me after a while that I, I just like storytelling and I like visual storytelling. I mean, I could have ended up in games or film or comic books, right. and I think it would have been equally happy in any of these things because they touch on the things that I enjoy doing. Yeah, and I think that's quite interesting. Like, I come from the, the film industry myself, hence why I'm still filming and editing, but th there's one difference between, like you mentioned there, comic books and films and games, is games is the only one that's interactive, where the, the person consuming the uh, entertainment mm -hmm. is also the person creating it at the same time. Absolutely. So the the extra effort as a creator creating the media of giving the freedom or giving them the perspective to actually be able to create their own entertainment, uh, that that must add like a whole new dimension. Uh, absolutely, because we were we're working as storytellers, enabling other people to become their own storytellers. And those are the kind of games I really like working on. I don't like working on heavily scripted games. I, I like games where the players can can run around and and kind of figure out what they want to do and how they want to do it. So I'm you know really happy to be working on a, a big open world title that gives players a lot of freedom because they're you know basically able to tell their own stories you know to themselves in a way that is comfortable for them. Yeah. Right. And I mean an another part of that is also the layer of storytelling that is told through the environment. Like in film of course with sets and stuff you you add in uh, a feeling of mm. this place, but in in games it's often something hidden off to the side where you find it and then you kind of imagining the story of how everything got to. Yeah, yeah I mean, and I absolutely love this stuff. I mean, one of the things uh, I really like about you know, uh, my current title, Division 2, is the level of detail of world building that we do. Um, it's, it's fun. It is layers of storytelling. 
So while, you know, the game has, okay, here's a story, you need to go from here to here and do this thing. If you stop and look around, you will see all of these events that happened or that you can you can kind of figure out what, what probably happened here based on things like, you know, just scarring in the world or graffiti or, you know, um, trash or just, you know, blood, whatever it is that we put in the world. And, you know, and, and we do this on the objects, we do it on the clothing, pretty much everything we put in the world has a story, you know, and I, I, I cannot stand it when I see a game and everything looks like it's brand new that it came off the assembly line because nothing in the real world looks that way. And, you know, and we, we spend a lot of time thinking about how worn should this be, how torn up should it be, how dirty should it be for everything we put into the game. Because again, that is another layer of, of storytelling. And it's it's a kind of storytelling that I really love doing. And for, I know for some players, they're just going to run around and they'll just, you know, not focus on that. But I know there are some that stop and, you know, zoom in and check out the details. And I, I love making content for those players. Yeah, and even the ones that are not paying attention to it subliminally, they will get an it, extra absolutely. Filling. Yeah, absolutely. And I like, I saw a, um, a kind of a critique or a comparison between two of my favorite games, uh, Fallout Three and Fallout New Vegas. Mm. And they were kind of uh, the the thesis was why Fallout New Vegas is a more immersive world. And the main question that I thought like, what do these people eat? Right, <laughs> and then they just went through. It's like in Fallout New Vegas, you can see farms, you can see like they're actually ha- these are actually habitats, not just houses. And that, right. that's like always stuck with me. It's like, and ever since, whenever I play a game, I'm like, okay, so how does life actually work outside of this mission that I'm on? Right, and that's something we really try to convey because even though the situation in New York and Washington in our game is very very bad, um, there's still people making things function. Right. And and we put a lot of, of focus on making sure that what they're doing makes sense. It's stuff that would actually work uh, in order to keep people fed, to keep people housed, to keep people clothed. And for me, one of the things that's really important about The Division as, as a franchise is the layer of hope always has to be there. Mm-hmm. Always. We're not a dystopia. Mm. We're a game about hope. Right. Yeah, and moving forward and, and trying to, to reach a, uh, yes. a, a good Th- Things are bending, but they're not completely broken yet. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the line we like to ride in the game. Right. Yeah. One question, though, about, uh, and I'm stepping away a little bit from, from the division and more into your background again, mm-hmm. and, and the world building, uh, looking at what we can do now in AAA, these huge, mm. like, huge worlds, um, especially here at Ubisoft and Massive, where we work very much with, with this big, fantastic, and we have so much room for, as you talked about, environmental storytelling. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. But is there anything you missed from the, like working on an FPS with 20 people, the kind of world building you'd have to do within, is there any charm that you missed from that? Or is it just not, not good re- Not really. I mean, I kind of miss your hands-on level design a little bit every once in a while. Once you get into management, actually, doing, you know, what I think of as the real work becomes something you don't get to do too right. often, you know, but I, I wouldn't go back. Uh, no, no, it's just, uh, I don't think anybody would, but yeah. kind of the, if you're looking at, at Quakers, uh, it's very in your face with all the mm-hmm. demons and all the pentagrams and stuff. Um, but yeah. still, if there was something there in the way you had to be creative to tell these stories back then, the answer might just be no, thanks, never again. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. again, I don't know if I even missed that part of it because a lot of those games don't even really, really make a whole lot of sense if you, if you look at them, if you look at them <laughs> that's, carefully, that's you know, and, and they, they could only have so much content and so a lot of it had to be very impactful and very kind of on the nose, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and patient storytelling wasn't a thing that was really even an option for them no. back then. But based on, you know, what, what I like to do and what interests me, what we can do now is much more of a suitable environment for me because yeah. I, I like those layers. I like the, the depth. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and I like stories that can unfold at different speeds based on how the, the, the player, you know, wants them to. Yeah. yeah. More than just demon there kill. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm getting horrible flashbacks to procedurally generated dungeons in like Daggerfall. <laughs> when it comes to environmental storytelling and pacing and stuff. Like yeah. what the heck yeah. is going and, on? And procedurals, you know design is really interesting to me i mean i i really want to see where it goes i yeah. I, I don't think it will ever completely take over handcrafted stuff but i do think there's going to be a space for it yeah yeah most definitely yeah i'm, I'm gonna let my add kick in uh, slightly here and and completely change the subject because there, <laughs> there's a question that i like to ask my uh, filmmaker friends like when i first meet them which is normally like what, what is your first memory of watching a movie not what's the first movie that you saw but like what's your first memory so to you what, what is your first gaming memory not not the first game you played but the first like it stuck with you like oh games all right i mean i'm really old so <laughs> so like anyone my age i can usually reference pong as being my first you know memory you know the 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 the, the table tennis game that we had in our black and white tv oh gee you know so i guess that's it but you know, when I think about what I do now for a living, in some ways it doesn't really feel like it was that first step because it was it was a digital version of of, of a basic you know reflex game. You know, I always think of, of Space Invaders as the first real video game because it had mechanics that just couldn't exist any other way. You know, just little things like having to shoot up through your defensive barriers as a, a way to get additional offense was a game design choice. An interesting one, and, and for me, in the history of video games, maybe the first really interesting game design choice that couldn't exist outside of video games. Yeah, an extra mechanic that actually defined it as a separate art form yeah. rather than an imitation of a real-world company. Yeah, yeah, and I, I and I, I first played it on a Commodore PET in, uh, in my uh, high school uh, computer class. And, you know, and uh, it just really struck me as such an interesting idea. So um, I kind of just started thinking about games a lot more after that. And uh, I mean, I guess that's part of why I'm, I'm, I'm here now, the tendency to kind of parse it out and try to figure out how things work. Yeah, and you also mentioned that, you know, you used to do mods and, and hacks yeah. uh, back in the day. Like, yeah. w- what sort of, w- was it uh, environmental mods then? Or like computer? You know, I, I remember there was a game called Boulder Dash that had a, a level editor. And and I made a ton of levels for it. I, I just found it fascinating. And back then, you could share levels with the BBS systems, and uh, and with other Commodore sixty four players. And uh, a couple of years ago, I saw somebody was uh, had taken that game in a, in an emulator and had all of these you know fan made uh, levels in it. And my levels were still in there. Oh, like nice. Over Thirty years later. Nice. So it was kind of neat. I couldn't get the emulator to run though. <laughs> so I, couldn't, I couldn't look at my old levels. Oh wow! Well, what was it like moving from from hacking C64 games and stuff to moving into Doom? 
moving into modding 3D space in that way? Uh, I mean, for me, it was fun because Doom was such a visceral experience, and it was, mm-hmm. and it was, it was a, you know, for me, it was a multiplayer experience, and you know, and. Um, the uh, the chance to make stuff and get immediate feedback from people I know on it, mm-hmm. um, and and instant critiquing of it, and you know among my friends who did the same thing, we got really competitive about it really fast. Who could be the best at this kind of thing? Um, and and for me that part of it was really fun, and that was maybe my first real taste of you know what I do now, which is make stuff and then just put it out there and wait to hear what people. You know, have to say about it, good or bad. <laughs> yeah, I did, I did a bunch of modding in uh, Duke Nukem 3D when they released oh, yeah? that, that editor. That was a lot of fun. Now, listening to you, I kind of wish I'd stuck with it for more than a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm also having flashbacks of modding GTA 1, editing the sprites. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting in paint, just adding stuff. Yeah, or, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. We did that with Civilization 2. No. It was really easy, and it was really easy to cheat if you just went into the inner files. <laughs> Great find. Highly recommended. Um, but uh, how was it? You you came from Vancouver, yep. as you said, and then you you also mentioned that you worked at Ubisoft Mainz in um, in Germany. Yep. What was it like moving from Vancouver to to here? Uh, why did you move? I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd been in the game industry in Vancouver for, I guess, over a decade. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bounced around a couple different companies, worked at places like EA Sports and so forth. Uh, The Vancouver AAA game industry kind of dried up at a certain point. Um, It didn't completely disappear, but it became a lot tougher. There was a a change in government and government policies that meant that some of the incentives and tax breaks available to the game industry kind of went away. And so... You know, um, Rockstar left, Disney closed. Um, there there's just suddenly wasn't a lot of work in AAA in Vancouver. And I, I dabbled in, in sort of mobile free-to-play stuff and decided that was not for me. Right. And so if I wanted to stay in AAA gaming, I needed to look outside of Vancouver. So I started looking at jobs in other parts of Canada, the United States, Europe, Asia. And as it turns out, it was Ubisoft Blue Byte in, in Mainz in Germany that... Um, you know, took an interest enough to fly me out there, um, and uh, and talk to me, and uh, I guess it went well because I flew back to Vancouver, and there was a job offer waiting for me when I landed. No, that was pretty good. Yeah, so that was that was that was interesting. And, <laughs> so you just uh, t- turned around. You yeah, know, yeah. On the way home from the airport, <laughs> oh, going back to Germany. Oh, it was, it was hilarious. So I got the job offer and uh, uh, went to uh, talk to my wife, and we'd been together for about twenty years. Um, but we weren't married, married. We'd lived together for a long time, but if you're going to take somebody to another country with you, you need yeah. a piece of paper. So I'm like, uh, how about we go live in Germany for a while? And she's like, all right. And I'm like, uh, we'll have to get married, married. And she's like, okay. And this was like, I think on a Thursday, we contacted a judge to come to our apartment who was there on the Sunday and we had uh, two witnesses, two friends as witnesses, and had this very, very short ceremony. And then my wife and I, we went on to Facebook. And at the same time, we announced to everyone in Facebook, we're moving to Germany, we're married, come drink with us at this pub. And that's how our friends and family found out. <laughs> Games industry wedding, I think. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot of expats. Yeah, and then two months later, like, 
give away 90% of our stuff and, and, and come to Germany. And you're, I mean, you're asking what it's like. I mean, every country is different and you find really interesting nuance to that when you live in a place rather than just visit it. Of course. You know, and there were challenges. Um, there's always challenges. Moving is very, very hard at the best of times. Moving across the city is hard. Um, changing continents is something else, you know, but it's also really exciting. And it's really rewarding. It's really interesting, you know. And I, I went from, you know, a, a very big modern, you know, metropolitan city to, you know, kind of a large medieval town full of thousand-year-old buildings and old churches, you know, on, on the Rhine. Um, it was like Ed Izzard says, welcome to Europe. This is where history comes from. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, and just the way of life was just so different. And... Yeah, you know, um, but also you know, language barriers and cultural barriers. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are so many things about expectations, body language that are different. Um, for me, the big one I, I always warn people: uh, how cultures deal with conflict resolution is very different in every country. Right, you have to learn this stuff if mm-hmm. you're going to actually function. Did you did you notice not only, of course, culturally moving to a different country, but also in kind of comparing away the industry in the U.S. and Europe? Uh, it was, I mean, yeah. Same I mean, thing? Like, yeah. I mean, working in, in Canada is a lot like working in, in the United States for sure. the most part. So the game industry there is famous for some pretty brutal work hours. Uh, crunch is fairly common. I did some astonishing hours uh, at my time in Vancouver. Um, and it was just part of the landscape there. It was just if you were in the game industry, you... You know, the, you worked some heavy hours mm-hmm. and there was a lot of instability. It was very easy to just, you know, show up at work one day and go, oh, there's been a round of layoffs. Yeah. It would come in, in, in the email. You're like, oh, get, grab your stuff. Yeah. Uh, get out now. Yeah, there are uh, a lot know, of horror stories. You know, and that. yeah, and when I was in, in, in Germany, you know, and the, the, the one time I suggested that maybe I would need some people on my team to, you know, stay until eight o'clock. And the studio manager was like, no. <laughs> We're not doing that. We can delay the launch. Like, all right. Uh, it's just such a different mindset sure. about, you know, um, the protection of, of, of personal time is, is much more important, I find, in Europe. Mm-hmm. And as, uh, and I'm sure many North Americans who've moved to Europe can testify to this, it is a hard to adjust to. Um, you know, because uh, it's so ingrained. Like, it's, it's, so, it's, it's so ingrained. Yeah. So if, uh, if I'm not feeling well, then I, I like, oh, I'm going to stay home today. I'm not feeling well. The guilt. Right. Mm. Because you don't do that right. back on the other side of the pond, right? So uh, it takes a while to untrain that emotional response to it. Sure. Yeah, I can. You know, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it's, the people here are much more protective of their, of their free time. There's a lot more regulations in place mm-hmm. um, to, to make these things manageable. But it doesn't stop, you know, European countries from producing a lot of product. Right. Sure. And, uh, you know, so that was, that was really, that was really interesting. Um, you know, another thing that I, I really found is that, and I don't think this can be true through, through all of Europe, but certainly in Scandinavia and, and in Germany, there's a lot more negotiation in problem solving. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more hierarchical back in Vancouver. So, you know, if somebody is the boss, if they're the senior producer, they're creative director, and they say, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do, then everyone does it. 
you know, and here that's not necessarily the case. You actually have to convince people that your idea makes sense or nothing happens, <laughs> you know, and that's very different from, from what I'm used to. And, and for me, it's just really one of the positives about working here. There's so much emphasis on consensus. Let's get everyone on board, right? you know, and it means you kind of have to do your homework on whatever ideas you have uh, to, to really sell it to people. And I think that's really good. So how how was uh, coming to Ubisoft? Uh, it was, I mean, in some ways it was a bit of a dream come true because they'd made so many games that uh, that I really liked. And I'd never had the opportunity to work uh, in the Canadian offices. Um, and it was such a big company. And I mean, I'd worked for Electronic Arts, which is also a big company, but it's structured very differently. And I find Ubisoft is extremely connected. Mm -hmm. So even though we're in like, I don't know, 30 different cities uh, on any given day, I'm working with people in multiple cities. You know, even today, you know, uh, in addition to my team here, I'm working with people in Bucharest and Montreal and Shanghai and Pune, mm -hmm. and we're all working on the same stuff, Right. you know, and uh, it means that there's a lot of people you can turn to if you need help with something, a lot of people you can turn to if you need answers for something. If you just need a little bit more people with a certain kind of know-how, there might be somebody available. So, um, it gives you a lot of opportunities to tackle situations that would just be a, cl a closed door in a smaller office where there would just be no solution. Right. And I've learned that I like big projects with big teams. Um, you know, so uh, coming to Ubisoft was a chance to do that. You know, big projects that get a lot of press, um, that get a lot of eyeballs on them, that get a lot of pressure on them. Um, but where you also have a lot of resources in terms of people and, and development dollars um, is my favorite kind of game development mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Uh, it's just where I'm comfortable. And I think Ubisoft was the really the first opportunity I had to work on games that were on that scale. Right. Okay, so, so you like the, the pressure of it. Yes. It helps you do better work or... Uh, I, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, but I, I enjoy it nonetheless, um, for whatever reason. Uh, just big projects with a lot of attention is, uh, I guess the expectation is part of it, but I also just find the process of working on games this big to be really interesting. You know, and, and, and the challenge is really interesting to solve. But I, I'm not going to lie, it is fun to launch something and see it on TV and on the news and people writing about it and you go on social media and everyone's talking about it. It's legit fun. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah, and you, you, you're working on a live game as well. So it's a constant feed of, of getting new updates out there yep. and getting player interaction. Players are playing every day, talking yep. to you. You're quite active on Twitter, for example. Yeah, I mean, I, I like live game. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was on, uh, I guess, uh, Rainbow Six Live for a while and now I've been in Division Live for a while. And uh, I enjoy it. I mean, you get to roll out content on a fairly regular basis, whereas on some teams you go years without something being put in front of the players. I've been very lucky in that I've never had to do that. Right. Um, I, I've been getting content out to players regularly my whole career. And uh, it's uh, it's it's... Even when the, the response is not, you know, as positive as you would like, it's still interesting and it's still kind of fun. Yep. Um, I, I do caution, it's probably not for everyone. You know, some people, when we launch stuff, they just don't look online for the reaction, right? right? Because if it's negative, it's something that's going to weigh on them a little bit. For whatever reason, 
it doesn't bother me that much. Some things go really well. Some things go less well. Mm-hmm. You know, you take in the data, you think about it, you learn from it, and, and you move on. Yep. Yeah, but when you say it, it, if it's a negative, it doesn't bother you, but it's still something that you consider and take on. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So, if, if, you know, uh, it, it doesn't... It doesn't weigh on me emotionally is, is what I mean. But of course we have to take the information and think about it and decide, okay, well, what do we do different? What do we do instead? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, and, there, and there's, and there's so many considerations with the live game. It's okay. What, cause you can say, well, what did the players want? But there's no such thing as the players. There's different kinds of players that yeah. want different things. And we have to kind of look at all of them and, and see the different things that they're saying. There's the thing that the developers want to do. And that matters too. Because people need to be motivated and need to be excited about what they're doing. Ideally, you find things that the team wants to do and the the players want. Yeah, you want and to find that, that lines that up, part and, of and, and, and the studio's okay with it, and you actually have a budget for it. You know, then it's okay. Wow, um, <laughs> we, can, we can do all the things. Um, you know, but the reality is, it isn't always there. Sometimes you want to do something, but you don't have the time, or you don't have the the right personnel at that point. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of factors that go into it. There's always a million things we want to do. And, uh, what we actually can do always feels like a, a very small part of that, but it's a constant conversation that's always, you know, under consideration, always under adjustment because the circumstances are constantly changing. What other games are out there is constantly changing. The talent available to us is constantly shifting. Um, you know, so, it's it's a very active form of design. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about kind of your day to day, if you will, because uh, I mean you you are now on a a smaller team than when Division Two yep. originally launched, yep. and uh, like you mentioned, when you started off, you were wearing a lot of hats, and I get the feeling that it's kind of the same. It is a little bit, now. yeah. We're we're a smaller team now, so. Um, you know, when I when I started in division, I had a very specific scope. And as people have rolled off onto other projects, more things have been put on my plate, which is which is fine. I mean, it's not always the most ideal. There are times when I wish I could, you know, hand some stuff off to to another person. Um, but it also means that you get, you know, to be in more conversations about the game than you necessarily were uh, when it was when it was a bigger team. Um, you know, for me, my my day to day. I guess I, I mean, I have a, a number of people that report to me, both here and who are working for me in other cities. So I try to get in pretty early before most people do to to catch up on emails and remind myself what's on my plate in terms of stuff that's, you know, urgent, semi-urgent or, you know, down the road stuff. Um, and then the day itself, I mean, like a lot of managerial game devs, it's maybe... I'd say maybe 25, 30% meetings, which is better than I think a lot of people in, in my situation. And uh, the rest of my time is a combination of people pull me over and say, hey, I have a question, I have a problem, what should, we, what should I do? And I help you know them walk through the thought process where we come up with the best solution. And I spend a chunk of my day just looking at our desk that's coming in and you know deciding, okay, is this is this good enough? Is this ready? If not, what feedback should I give? Is there technical feedback I should get? Who should I hand that off to? Um, so my day is broken up by a lot of small tasks. Yeah. Now we we had a, a recent podcast with uh, concept artists, 
And uh, mm-hmm. we, we talked a little bit about their process of how to be creative and come up with stuff. But I also want to hear, like, from the other side, you managing concept artists, mm-hmm. how to communicate down what you want them to communicate to the players, if, if you get what I mean. Yeah, I mean, it, it it will vary quite a bit based on the who is initiator of the core idea of the stuff we need to do. Because sometimes, you know, game design will come to us and say, hey, we need concepts for this. Um, you know, sometimes it's stuff that we come up with ourselves um, as a team conversationally. Sometimes I come up with an idea and then, you know, I, and I make a brief and then I, I sit down with the concept artists and... Um, I, I think when I present a brief, I do it mostly verbally. So I sit down with them and try to explain in my head what it is that we're trying to do, the kind of storytelling we're trying to do. I think art is always storytelling. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I think you're probably talking about the, the concept artist for, for character clothing and, yeah. and gear. Yeah. You know, and so we're always like, okay, who would, who would dress this way? Why? What's, what's, what's the story behind this person? Um, you know, so it gives you a kind of a reference to sort of ground uh, your direction. Um, otherwise, I mean, concepting is one of those things that it can take a long time. If you have if you have too much freedom, you can go in a lot of different areas. So often, the first thing you want to do is kind of narrow down your scope to some important specifics and then iterate on those. So for me, it's yeah, I try to sell them on the kind of storytelling we're doing, and then once they get started, then of course it's sort of a normal back and forth. Um, where they show me stuff, and if I think it's not quite in the right direction, then again we talk about it, and I suggest why I think it's drifting in, in a different way than we were expecting, um, or, or would like at this time. And uh, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's pretty much it. Yeah, if you want to listen to that particular episode, Dory is talking about it's the episode just before this one in the feed. So do, we interviewed do, Marie and Toppy, and then we brought in their boss. Do, do they say bad things about me? No, they say, uh, you'll have to listen to find out. Do, do, they, <laughs> exactly. do they cry uh, afterwards? Okay, they did. Yeah. Not, not, not on tape. <laughs> no, they didn't. It was, it's a, it was a really good uh, discussion. You, uh, you were talking about who is this person and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, Marie, who was in that episode, comes from a fashion background. Mm-hmm. Kind of how the fashion industry looks the other way. It's not. She explained that here we look at who would dress. And then you go to create the clothes and fashion industry is kind of the other way around. Here's the product. Who will actually wear this? And then right. go from there. There's a really interesting uh, discussion from Marie. She had a lot of insights into that. So go listen to that episode if you haven't already. Yeah. But I, I also, I mean, because we want to dive a little bit more into uh, like who you are mm-hmm. rather than, than uh, just your job, which of course is a big part of, like I feel like my job is a big part of me. But there is there is a life outside of jobs. So what do you like to do when you free time? Do you have like hobbies that uh, you like to? Yeah, I mean, I have less hobbies than I used to. I mean, I seem to. I used to make music, and that seems to have stopped for for a long time now. I used to draw. I used to write. Those things seem to have stopped. Um, I, I'd say generally, when I think of uh, what do I do when I have the real option with my free time, my favorite thing in the world to do is travel. I absolutely adore travel. And there isn't a part of the planet that I don't want to see personally. And my favorite thing to do in the world is probably to explore a city I've never been in before on foot. Just walk around and look at everything and soak it in and and look at the the layers of history and the architecture and look at the way that people's lives there will be functionally different because of the way the cities are set up and, 
and uh, look at the differences in terms of the way people decorate their world and, uh, you know, go into bars and cafes and talk with the locals. Um, the, this is probably what inspires me more than anything else. And I get a charge from it. And uh, when I'm at work and I'm feeling charged, it's usually because I've just come back from a trip. Yeah, I was just about to say that uh, sounds very in- interestingly like it is part of the job. Uh, like, Yeah, and and I think for, for what I do, I mean, I, I think, you know, you also have to kind of be current, right? So if I'm going to make clothing, I need to know what are people wearing and really look at it. Like how how, how are they assembling things? How are these things actually pieced together? How are people choosing to to arrange their appearance in the world? You know, and, and again, how do people decorate their, their personal spaces? And, you know, I, I think to work in art, you have to be a, a sponge that is always taking in new information. And uh, so whether I'm walking around a city or watching a movie or music videos, um, I'm always asking, you know, questions about about trends in in the way people operate in the world and and how it might be something that we can sort of reflect back on the world in, in the work that we do. I have a lot of questions to the kids these days who's decided, at least in Sweden, to dress the way we did in the 90s. So the big question is, Why? Why are you doing this? We <laughs> sacrificed ourselves to wear this crap. It's because twenty, thirty years ago. It's because Stop there it. was no social media back then, so the photos of us back then don't really exist. So they haven't seen how ridiculous it looks. Ah, okay, good. You're gonna suffer so much when you grow up. Yeah, see, <laughs> see, see, see the awfulness you're wearing. So I went to high school and and, and college in the uh, in the eighties. Mm-hmm. It's a very different aesthetic. Yep. Want to bring it back? <laughs> Uh, not on me, but <laughs> sure. I mean, I used to practically dress like an extra member of Duran Duran. I don't think anyone wants to see me do that now. Oh, I want to see you do that now. Uh, but what was that like then? Uh, coming to going back to Malmo, and you just had different layers of history, the details in the city, etc. What was that like coming here, especially yeah, I, with your family history too? Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it, it's really interesting because I mean, I. I because my family was, you know, an expat family in another country where most people stayed behind here. Most of my relatives were here and unknown to me. I've actually been to a family reunion in Copenhagen where I met a bunch of relatives that I'd never met before. Um, You know, and and my family names are all over the tombstones in the cemetery here. And if I wanted to, I could get like a a lawyer, a doctor, and a dentist with my name Uh, because there's (laughs) enough of them, you know, my family name. Um, So, so that part's in, family discount. That that part's interesting. <laughs> uh, Melville's a, 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 an interesting place. Like, you know, if somebody was like on, you know, from North America or Asia was wherever outside of Europe was on their first European tour, I don't know that it would be on my list of cities to visit. Right. Right. No. Um, We are the little like little sibling of yeah, Copenhagen. Yeah. 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 You know, but it's. I find it interesting how in so many European cities, like you'll have like the little historical town, and you'll have the you know, the new town and, and, and these really compartmentalized spaces. And Malmo's a bit of a mess where, you know, <laughs> uh, there's just every street has buildings from, you know, 500 years ago, 100 years ago, from the 70s, you know, some horrible brutalist thing, oh, you know, okay. and something new. And they're all side by side. Yeah. Um, and so it gives it a little bit of a different character, I think, than, than a lot of Europe. Yeah. And uh, it's... I, I enjoy the weird re- 
rebellious nature that people in Skona have about being Swedish but different. Because <laughs> they seem to take a, they seem to take a lot of pride in well we're Swedish but we're not from Stockholm. No, that, that's that's the big thing. That, <laughs> it is that's, a very that's big, a big thing. It's a very big thing. It's kind of we're very close to Copenhagen where where our daughter yeah. lives, and it's kind of the same thing between our cities. We're we're very close, but we're certainly not Danish and the other way around. <laughs> we're allowed to do that. We love yes. each other, but yes, but I've even seen people do the. We're we're a little bit different because we're a little bit more Danish, but we're not Danish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you you. Give an insight into how it works, the dynamic between Copenhagen and, and Malmo. We complain about drunk Danes here, and they complain about drunk Swedes there. Yes. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah, pretty much goes back and forth. Yep. Yep. And, but I mean, and I, I, I mean, Copenhagen is one of my favorite cities. It's a wonderful, so beautiful it's city. so nice to have it so close. Yep. But who has the best tequila? <laughs> I'm really not a, well, I mean, Mexico, obviously. <laughs> well, but, well. Uh, True. More of a whiskey drinker. Okay. <laughs> but you were a fan of uh, the division coming here. I was. I was. Um, I've been a fan of Tom Clancy games for a long time. When the first Rainbow Six came out uh, a while ago, I mean, I played it religiously and, and its sequels and then uh, discovered that some of my friends were into playing the multiplayer online. And we had a group that played... Uh, these games and and Counter Strike games on every Friday night from midnight till sunrise, and we this group lasted for years, and uh, you know so I was just always a fan of of the brand, and when I was in Blue Byte uh, in in Germany, I got an opportunity to work on Rainbow Six Siege, um, which was a huge thrill for me. Um, so a chance to go back to the actual you know game that I, I loved so much and, and a new version of it. And uh, while I was working on it, I remember we were looking at the launch of Division closely because obviously another another Clancy game, and uh, and it was a game that that had a launch and then through the live aspect started iterating on the game. Yep. And we we really looked at that as an example of you know you can launch a game and if there's some things that people are calling out as as you know not quite there, we can iterate on it. Right. And so we very much took that as an inspiration for iterating on Rainbow Six. And uh, while we were sort of looking at that, I started playing Division, and then I kept playing it, and I kept playing it, and I kept playing it, and I really fell in love with the game. I found it really, really compelling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so when it was time after after five years in Germany, and my wife and I were like, "It's uh, f Germany's been awesome, but, f but five years was, you know, kind of the max of the plan, so where are we going next? You know, I was curious about uh, Malmo because, uh, you know, as previously mentioned, I had a family connection here and I'd been here and liked it. But I also knew that the studio here had worked on Division, a game that I loved. So, you know, the the chance to come to a, a city I have a historical connection to that I love to work on what was probably my favorite franchise at the time. I mean, how fortunate can can you yeah. feel, you know? than to get the opportunity to do that. So, you know, so at that moment where, you know, I got the call saying, yes, you're coming to Massive, and you know, it's the happiest boy in the world. Yeah, I can imagine. And also it seems like such a, looking at the Division and Division 2, it just sounds everything you've, you've told me and Dory now, just feels like such a perfect fit because in the game, the city is so important. 
It is. And and I, both, both yeah, of yeah. And I, I'm a city person. I love cities. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go to the country once in a while, look at a tree and go, Hey, there's a tree and a mountain <laughs> and where's my hotel. Yep. Um, you know, I, 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 but I love cities all over the world. I just, I mentioned exploring cities is, yep. is my favorite thing to do. And in some ways division was one of the few games I've played that really kind of captured that essence of it. It oozes the city as pretty much a character yep. in that game. It was beautifully done. And uh, and I think that's absolutely one of the reasons I loved the game. Yeah. Right? It's it's handling of 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 the city in yeah. a way that I think very few games. I don't know if any game before Division really got it that way. And when I was looking at the level of detail put into it, I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is people doing what I've been wanting to do forever." Right. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, I was just just really really impressed with the team. Yeah, you can really do virtual tourism in, in both of the games. Yep, you just turn a corner is something completely new. The, the way it's built on real life. Yeah, yeah. To say, it I mean, I worked on the game, and I still find stuff where I'm yep. like, uh, "Have I ever seen this before?" <laughs> when I'm walking around the game. Yeah, and I have to say for for my part that I think the very first images that were released for Division Two that was the site of Air Force One where that crashed. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And when I first got there in game and I started looking around, that's when it kind of started clicking for me, like how deep the environmental storytelling goes. Because mm -hmm. it's not just oh, here's a broken plane and we put it down here right. on the ground. When you look around, you can see oh, it hit there and then it must have broken up and then this piece bounced off of there it was like it was very detailed and deep somebody thought of how the crash would have happened yep and not just plunk a a, a plane down there yeah oh yeah yeah and i, I mean most of that would have been um uh, benedict the art director mm -hmm. on the project and i know his devotion to detail yeah um yeah. and it, it and it shows yeah yeah <laughs> that's the awkward silence that we added yeah right? yeah, yeah. Perfect. I actually think we... I, I didn't feel awkward. You didn't feel awkward. <laughs> no, it's, then we, it's good. Then we it was, just have it. It was, it was good for me. It was okay. fine. Yeah. Just breathe now. We'll just leave it in then. <laughs> I, 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 can, I, I, I can enjoy your company in silence. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I mean, we can sit here all day if you want. I Well, at some point I'll need lunch, but... Okay. That's, we have George behind the... Behind the microphones here. <laughs> <laughs> he, will, he, will, he will help us help us out. All but right. Now, But no, Pilot, thank you so much for coming here today. It's been been amazing. Oh, uh, thank you. This has been fun. Yeah, yeah. absolute pleasure. You are welcome back whenever you feel like. Oh, it. yeah, anytime. Yeah. Same time tomorrow. Yep. Um. <laughs> well, sure. Why not? Welcome to the Pilot season of Behind Massive Screens. <laughs> 12 episodes, one every Friday. Look forward to it. All right. No, but thank you very much. And I, I also as the first one. Thank you, Dory. It's been wonderful. You'll be back. Yeah. I mean, if you uh, enjoyed my presence, uh, make sure, of course, to like and subscribe and all that. If the numbers go go up, I'll be here next time. Do I, do I have to do that? <laughs> please. Yeah, yes. Okay. Please. Yeah. I, I, uh, every vote counts. Exactly. Please. <laughs> Why not? But yeah, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, see you next time. For the audio, we're waving at the camera. <laughs> Bye.